a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists not to titillate you, not to scare you, not to tell you what to think or otherwise give you marching orders. I'm just here to speak the truth. Whether that pleases people or not, I hope it does. I mean, look, I don't like to be a you know wet blanket on anybody's day, but I believe we live in a time where truth is harder than usual to get your hands on. So I'm not here to tell you this is the only way you should think, but I'm doing my very best to provide information that can hopefully steer you in a productive direction in your own search for the truth. It's not about, well, do you agree with me on everything or not? Because you can't be my friend if you don't. It's more a matter of, let me offer something that might provide a slightly different vantage point, but overall a more complete picture of what's going on. And what you do with that information, well, that, my friend, that's entirely up to you. I have wonderful sponsors who do make this possible. I have a nice list of them. They're on my uh, my webpage, thebrianhydeshow.com. If you go to my show notes, you'll see Dixie Chiropractic and also HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and Govern Your Crypto, all neatly listed with links that will connect you to each one of them. And I would encourage you, if you need their product, you need their service, please consider doing business with them. Well, I've seen a lot of back and forth in the last couple of days over the lifting of the mask mandates. And I don't want to sound petty, or at least I don't want to sound like, man, this guy really carries a grudge, but... It just drives home what we have been put through over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, forgive me for for being human on this, but it really, it, it just angers me to see the, the petty authoritarianism that was unleashed in the name of, well, we're just trying to protect you. But in particular, let me tell you what set me off. I'm, uh, I'm planning on going to, to a funeral this weekend. And, and I'm looking forward to it, to not because, you know, someone has passed away, but simply because I know I'm going to be seeing family members that I don't see very often. There will be tears. There will be laughter. There will be hugs. But most importantly, there will be togetherness. And nobody is going to be feeling the pressure of, well, are you properly masked? Or are you properly distanced? And I saw this video earlier today. This Somebody had just posted it on Twitter and said, hey, don't forget <clears throat> that this was considered normal behavior. And it was it was video taken at a funeral home of a family, you know, attend, I guess they were attending their mother's funeral. And, uh, dur- or no, I guess it was, maybe it was the dad's funeral. At any point, everybody's carefully spaced out. Remember how we had to have at least six feet, 10 feet of separation, even better. So people are very sparsely, you know, positioned throughout this uh, this funeral home chapel. And this mother is grieving right up there on the front row. And one of her sons moves his chair to go and sit next to her, to put his arm around her. And here comes the funeral director. And I mean, you can just see this right on the video. Just, hey, you can't do that. You you have to move. And everybody, of course, is masked and stuff. And it was like, yeah, we really did that to ourselves. Or we allowed people to do it to us. To artificially separate us, to, to lock elderly people down in, in care facilities and deny them any 
companionship whatsoever. People had to watch loved ones die, you know, from from afar by video if need be. I mean, they couldn't be there to comfort one another. And and this was considered normal. This was considered the only responsible thing to do. And if anybody protested, well, you know, the authorities would get involved. I mean, come on, for crying out loud. We're still, where I live in Idaho, we are still waiting for uh, Sarah Walton Brady to be put on trial for taking her kids to a playground. And she was arrested because she didn't leave the moment the officer told her, you get out of here. She asked him, what, what are you going to do, arrest us? Our kids are outside playing. You know, there's, there is no risk out here. Yeah, he arrested her. And the state of Idaho, using the uh, process as the punishment, has drug out, you know, giving her a trial. <sighs> Sorry, I'm venting. So forgive me for, for just kind of, you know, standing here and throwing up on your shoes. But dang it, this really happened. And so when you're feeling relief that the masks are coming off, look, I'm, I'm there too. I'm grateful. Look, I, I gave up on masks a long time ago. It's clear they do not prevent the spread of COVID. Now, having said that, if someone has to travel, for instance, if you have to be out in public, but you've been feeling symptomatic, I think, first of all, the best thing to do is don't go out in public if you're feeling sick, whatever it may be, stomach flu, cold, COVID, whatever. The wise thing to do is don't go expose people. But if it makes you feel better wearing a mask, go ahead. I'm not going to bust your chops for it. I'm not going to, you know, put you down for it. But if you have this mentality, but I have to force other people to do this too. Why, my mask doesn't work if you're not doing the exact same thing. I'm sorry. But the truth of the matter is you are now a cultist. You have joined a new religion, which was instituted in the last two years. And that religion is dying. And as is true with with false religions, the last ones, you know, hanging on are the most fervent believers. Kind of like the the dead enders who still maintained, you know, Saddam Hussein is still very much in power, even as he was on the run in, you know, in Iraq back in 2003. Well, this is turning into quite the epic rant. Let me let me jump into some content here. And uh, and I, I do have some really remarkable stuff to share with you today. And I want to start with an essay from Jordan Schachtel. It's an eulogy for the mask cult that sums up some of the lessons learned between 2020 and 2022. He says, one of the most ridiculous cults in human history has reached a terminal velocity. Jordan Schachtel writes, in my view, the mask regime is officially dead and buried. He says, in many of our day-to-day lives, at least those of us who live in free states, the mask has already become a complete afterthought. Unless you happen to be entering an airplane or a doctor's office, there's been no reason to have a mask signal in your possession. Now, he has an update here. Following the publication of this article, the White House announced it would appeal the federal court ruling that said the CDC did not have the authority to declare the airline mask mandate. Now, since then, I've also heard, just as an FYI, that that the CDC has shrugged when asked, well, are you going to appeal this? So I don't know if it's, if it's soon enough to pop corks yet or not. But I think, that, I think the American people have pretty much made their minds up that, uh, okay, we're done. The cheering on the airplanes, the, the flight attendants who ripped their own masks off and were like, thank goodness. You know, the employees who had to wear this because of, you know, corporate uh, rules and his finger shaking. They've got to be feeling a lot of relief right now. Anyway, back to the article. Jordan Schachtel says, Still, the act of donning the cloth remained a humiliating ritual for those of us who believe in human freedom. 
It served as a reminder of the continuing power of the safety regime. And moreover, it reminded us of the countless millions of lives ruined by our government as these power-drunk actors and propagandists employed COVID-mania defense measures purportedly designed to fight a virus. Now, he says the mask is many things. It's a political virtue signal. It's a sign of obedience, a tool for enhanced compliance, a shaming mechanism, a sign of superiority in for inferiority complex, and also a constant reminder of the inhumanity of our ruling class. It had nothing to do with science. In order for humanity to thrive, the mask cult had to meet its demise. And the airplane was the last stand for the mask cult. And on Monday, a federal judge struck down the CDC's unconstitutional airplane mask order, which, like virtually everything else related to COVID mania, was justified by pure quackery. Within hours, every airline in America waived their mask requirement, as did rideshare companies like Uber. Now, in a rare contest of accurately reading the room, the White House, in a rare instance, rather, of accurately reading the room, the White House didn't even bother contesting the judicial order. But as Jordan Schachtel points out, the last disciples of the mask cult are its most loyal. And here's a woman, Valerie Jarrett. You may remember her name. Posting herself in her car, wearing my mask no matter what non-scientists tell me I can do. Good for you, Valerie. <laughs> you do you, girl. Jordan Schachtel says, for some time into the future, the coastal elites and the compliant class will continue to seethe about Americans being allowed to make decisions based on their own individual health assessments. True believers of the mask cult will continue to wear a mask signal until finally they quietly accept the stupidity of continually wearing a soiled piece of cloth on your face and labeling it a scientific sanitary endeavor. He says the destruction of the mask cult was undoubtedly expedited by the handful of fearless scientists, reporters, and activists who persevered despite being targeted by the COVID mania mob. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, I don't want to start dropping names here because I'll definitely miss someone who is vitally important to this fight. But he says, I want to thank every single one of you for fighting the good fight. All right, at this point, I'm going to tap the brakes because I'm coming up on a commercial break myself. But I have a link to his article in my show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com. It's well worth your time. You might even want to subscribe to his Substack. His dossier Substack is uh, an excellent, <clears throat> excellent form of or a source of information that I like to check out on a daily basis. He's always got a good take on things. All right, we'll take a very quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to throw a mention out here for lifesavingfood.com. If you have been thinking about food storage, maybe it's time to stop just thinking about it and actually get serious and start taking some concrete steps towards securing some or adding to your existing stores of food. Click on the link I provide in my show notes. That's, again, lifesavingfood.com. Let them just present what they have for you. If it's on the website, it is in stock might be a good time to consider making that purchase. If you have people who you're giving gifts to, whether it's birthday or, or anything else like that, this is a marvelous gift, and it will be greatly appreciated. If not, right this moment, 
very likely in the near future, as we'll be talking about a little bit later on in the show. You know, Disney, once upon a time, was one of the very few brands that represented family-friendly entertainment and was safe was ki- safe for kids of all ages. In fact, if my parents wanted to, to drop us kids off to watch a matinee, if, if it was, oh, it's a Disney movie, they knew it's safe. Well, of course, Disney's, you know, very, very conscientious about making sure that it's good, fun, safe entertainment. I think we can safely say we've turned the corner. <laughs> Disney has taken a very decidedly activist turn in how they do what they do. And I want to share with you Confessions of a Disney Writer. This is uh, by Stella Paul. That is a pen name, obviously because Disney has very big lawyers and would, uh, would very much like to, uh, I'm sure, take Stella to court. But listen to what this former Disney writer has to say here. Stella Paul says, for many years, I made my living writing TV shows for Disney. I was proud of my work, considering it a privilege to make kids laugh all over the world. But in light of Disney's disastrous embrace of pro-pedophilia policies, I'm glad that I grew disillusioned with kids TV and walked away from the field. Every kids TV writer knows that when crafting a story, you have to be careful about modeling behavior. Whatever kids see, they imitate, so you should model positive traits in your scripts, particularly when writing for preschoolers. Imagine inserting a pint-sized Larry David character in your story who's obnoxious, argumentative, and sneaky. Inevitably, you'd get back notes from the story editor telling you to revamp the script to avoid modeling negative behavior. So, Disney's recent commitment to add queerness wherever possible can be explained as just trying to teach tolerance and inclusivity. The executives know that by showing queerness, they're modeling queerness and encouraging kids to imitate that behavior. As she says, in fact, Disney has had issues with sexualizing children for a long time. Cole Sprouse, a former Disney Channel star, recently noted that he and his co-star brother both suffered trauma from their acting career. He added, the young women on the Disney Channel were so heavily sexualized from an earlier age than my brother and I that there's no absolutely no way we could compare our experiences. Now, you only need to witness the spectacular flameouts of Disney child stars Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan to wonder what traumas changed them from adorable ingenues to hypersexual vixens. Tracking, tracking the uh, endless legal troubles... Destructive addictions and mental breakdowns of former Disney stars has almost become a parlor game, as in this depressing article that she links to, 20 Child Stars Ruined by Disney. What on earth happened to those beautiful kids that destroyed their sanity? Now, the writer goes on here to say that we know Disney has a history of exposing its young actors to convicted child molesters. Brian Peck served 16 months in prison after pleading guilty to two counts of molesting a Nickelodeon child actor. One year after his release, Disney hired him to work on the children's series Yay Me, starring London Tipton and The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Victor Salva served 15 months in jail for raping and videotaping a boy who was acting in a film he directed. Nevertheless, Disney hired him to direct the film Powder. And then there's the case of James Gunn, the hugely successful writer-director of the first two Guardians of the Galaxy films. Disney fired Gunn in 2018 after his disgusting sexual tweets about young boys prompted an outcry. Disney's honcho publicly proclaimed that Gunn's tweets were inconsistent with our studio's values and we've severed our business relationship with him. But that didn't last long. A few months later, Disney quietly rehired Gunn to direct Guardians of the Galaxy 3 
after various stars of the series wrote an open letter begging for Gunn to come back. So much for studio values. Parents are now furious about Disney's woke agenda to sexualize children in their organizing and protesting. Will their consumer boycotts of Disney's products and theme parks have a long-term impact on Disney's bottom line? Well, it's too soon to tell. But Stella Paul says uh, Disney's hostility to traditional family values is not winning at Friends, and its brand magic seems to be evaporating. She says, as for me, I'm glad to be an ex-Disney writer now. My disillusionment with the entertainment industry began with the 2003 Academy Awards when Meryl Streep led a standing ovation for Roman Polanski, who pleaded guilty to raping a 13-year-old girl. What was wrong with these people? Were they all sick? She says, as I learned about Disney's problems with hiring sex offenders and the predatory nature of so many in the business, watched the documentary An Open Secret to learn more, She says, I grew increasingly uneasy about participating in a field permeated by pedophiles. Kids now live in a world of immersive media, spending up to nine hours a day watching or using screens. This connection to physical reality is diminishing as their saturation in programmed imagery increases. And this unhealthy situation leaves their malleable minds frighteningly ripe for exploitation. Adults must wage war to protect their innocence. And she says taking down Disney would be a major victory in the battle to restore the sanctity of childhood. Now again, Stella Paul is a pen name. But wow, that's uh, that's some pretty straight talk. And actually, and again, she backs up what she's saying here. There are links to the various articles. And, you know, I'm not telling you you have to believe this. I'm just saying you should uh, maybe consider there are alternatives to Disney content. I mean, this makes me sad because you know how many you know how many brands Disney owns right now. I mean, if you've if you've had Disney Plus, <clears throat> we ordered it for my kids here a couple of years ago, and there's a lot of amazing content. In fact, the old Disney movies, actually, I still think are some of the best entertainment. Even though some of them haven't aged very well. I mean, come on, Escape to Witch Mountain. Let's let's face it; those special effects were, were cheesy at best. But I loved that there was a time where you could turn the kids loose and know that the content was going to be safe and not full of a bunch of woke, you know, indoctrination. So, what's an alternative? Okay, I'm not. I'm pointing out the problem here. Actually, Stella Paul is pointing out the problem. I'm just sharing what what she's pointing out here. What is a likely solution? Okay, well. Here goes. Here's my best college try. What if you rediscover books? I know. That is so 17th, 18th, 19th century. Books. We could be sitting there just watching something come out of a screen instead of, you know, turning pages and processing words and imagining things in our minds. And yet there's a reason that, you know, every, every time that I have moved in my life, I have felt like I've got to pare down what I own and I get rid of a bunch of stuff and I feel better, like I've purged a lot of weight from my life. The one thing that I have the hardest time getting rid of is books. And it's because I grew up reading. That was, my, that was one of my first and earliest enjoyments. My mom taught me to read at a very, very young age, and I have loved books ever since. And I still do. Even though I spend the majority of my day sitting in front of screens, I love books. I love the feel of a page under my fingertips. 
In fact, I've graduated to the point where I actually write in my books now. I know, we weren't supposed to, but annotations and, you know, writing in a book is, is part of the learning process. So that would be my recommendation. And if you really want to start it and you want to get your kids on a good path, maybe spend a little less time staring into a screen. And even when they're very young, start your kids reading. If that starts with them sitting on your lap and you reading to them, hey, that's a great start. Read together. You might be surprised to learn this, but there are still a number of amazing books out there that have endured the test of time and still have great lessons to teach and marvelous places to take you. All right, let me hop on my horse. We'll take a quick uh, break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. So happy to have them as a sponsor. And, you know, I sing the praises of Spencer Worthington on a regular basis, not just for his great ammo. And he does make very high quality new and remanufactured ammunition. But just because he is a great person, he's a, he's a model of what a good member of the community ought to be like. And for that reason, I would encourage you, particularly if you live in southern Utah, he's part of your community, do business with this guy. You probably run into him out at the shooting range if you spend some time out there, but know that he is doing positive things both in the community and in the, in the shooting community as well. And if you have need for ammunition, I would encourage you, please consider purchasing it from hslammo.com. Well, I know none of us wants to believe that uh, we could be easily manipulated by professional propagandists, right? We're paying attention. I mean, come on. I know what's going on. You're not going to fool me. I'm, <laughs> I'm smart enough and I'm wise enough and maybe cynical enough that they're just not going to pull things over on me. I, be- I want to believe that about myself, but I, I have to admit, the propaganda, it's, uh, it's good, These are very well-trained professionals who understand human psychology. They know how to manipulate people, and they're very, very good at it. So if you're brave enough to put that idea to the test, well, could I be manipulated by a professional propagandist? I'd like you to consider an essay by The Good Citizen on the enemy of my enemies. It's very instructive. The Good Citizen writes, We are forbidden to speak of Vladimir Putin at all these days without wrapping both sides of his name with sufficient admonishments of venomous slander. Anyone who does not pledge their immediate allegiance to the fashionable and misguided present hysteria against the man or 150 million Russians will be considered prima facie an apologist at best and a traitor at worst. They say he's a demon, a scoundrel, a war criminal, a cosmic accident sent to destroy democracy and all that is good and noble, which of course only derives from good and noble actions of the West claiming to still be democratic. Sixty years ago, they also said that by now cars would fly. There would be no more wars. Liberal democracy would shepherd us from evil and not morph into the evil it proclaimed to dispel. Thirty years ago was supposed to be the end of history. They say Putin is our enemy, and the reason they keep repeating it ad nauseum is that they know millions will believe it. Those who incessantly level these charges without irony apparently lack any self-awareness or a mirror. Perhaps all they have are mirrors and can only make dark accusations based on their own reflections. The good citizen says we used to expect so much of our enemies. 
with a minimal prerequisite being they behaved as such. And here we are, millions still believing the unbelievable, a new prepackaged promo kit of the present thing, delivered with the usual historical inconsistencies and logical fallacies, while millions more watch this charade repeat in disbelief. The good citizen says, if I have learned anything from Western governments in their quest to inflame a new Cold War with Russia, and now a new world war with both Russia and China, it's that they can't be trusted about anything. If they point in a direction and say, look, be outraged, it's your enemy. The only thing more outrageous than the cartoonish nature of their sloppy programming attempts is that they seem to work because not enough people stop and ask, why? In Sun Tzu's The Art of War, one of his five constants of warfare is the moral law. Quote, The moral law causes the people to be in complete accord with their ruler so that they will follow him regardless of their lives, undismayed by any danger. The consummate leader cultivates the moral law and strictly adheres to method and discipline. End quote. So the good citizen says a nation or people bound to their leaders by strong foundations and principles rooted in justification for a righteous conflict, whether in attack, defensive attack, diversion or defense, will be more likely to find success. It requires the people to be in complete accord with their ruler. Now, does this sound like NATO? Does the moral law exist in any nations of the West that just concluded two years of psychologically abusing, if not outright murdering their own citizens? Does it exist in the drunken empire of the West that's been at war with the world and its own people for decades? Wars used to require some foundation for public acceptance. Sun Tzu could hardly have imagined the ability of governments to manipulate and gaslight their own warriors to sacrifice for ennoble aims. Now all conflict requires is first and foremost a good public relations campaign. People want to feel like their side has a clear conscience about things. It never really matters whether the information that relieves the conscience is based on truth. They want a sense of moral high ground, even if that ground is built of straw. They seek to be on the right side of history, even if that side is objectively clouded in ambiguities and contradictions. Governments of the West have given up on the moral law a long time ago. They do as they please toward aims they are never honest about with those who entrusted their governance. Moral governance seems like a contradiction in itself. And so with no moral ground of any discernible kind to stand on, we're still supposed to believe what we're told by unscrupulous leaders about Russia and Putin. So let's play a game. Russia or the West? Political prisoners are held without trial accused of being against the regime. Rampant censorship. State-controlled media works for the regime. Kangaroo committees go after political opponents. Secret police for internal coups and crushing regime opposition. Election rigging. Shutting down protests of one political nature while allowing others. Unequal protection under the law. Oligarchy posing as democracy. Fascism posing as liberalism. Racism, sexism, child grooming, and bigotry disguised as state-mandated tolerance or education with corporations of all industries colluding with the state to carry out all of the above. Okay, so which is which, huh? Does, is, is, did those describe mostly Russia or the West? Well, the correct answer is both. Mostly, with the exception of the last three, which are exclusively American. The past two years alone, or 30 to 60 years for us older horses, have revealed where the real enemies of Western citizens are. And you know what? 
They don't appear to be in Russia. The Canadian government declared an emergency against peaceful working class protectors or protesters rather to seize their bank accounts and their assets after stealing $12 million in charitable fundraising money from two corporations that do crowdfunding. Was that Putin? How about the Australian government, which set up camps and forced healthy citizens to quarantine in isolation under the watchful eye of guards and health functionaries? If they escaped, they were arrested and charged with felonies. And this was before citizens were blasted with directed energy weapons by Canberra police for daring to exercise their basic human rights of protesting tyrannical vaccine mandates. The entire nation of Australia was a prison island for two years. Old habits. The Greek government is stealing money from pensioners who refuse the useless and deadly vaccines. Italy is following Greece. The European Union is withholding billions from the Hungarian people because it doesn't like who they voted for two weeks ago. U.S. hospitals have refused life-saving transplants to patients that are unvaccinated and even to children whose parents haven't received the clot shots. It hasn't been one instance, but dozens Did Putin force those hospital administrators toward such evil actions? The enemies of Western people are sitting in their parliaments and high offices, working as enforcers in their police departments. They jump from corporate boards to government bureaucracies. They work for a coordinated global technocracy that seeks to engineer chaos and conflict to subjugate and depopulate most of humanity before they are technologically engineered for a post-version of our species. Did Putin force these governments to terrorize their own citizens? Was Putin involved in funding the laboratory in Wuhan? Does Russia have over 300 experimental bioweapons labs in locations around the world that could threaten those countries hosting them with catastrophic consequences? The frequency of engineered global catastrophes requires adherence to the prescribed solutions by engineers of said catastrophes. It's the equivalent, it's the equivalent rather, of civilizational arsonists returning with the fire brigade expected to be greeted by the civilization as heroes. When the applause subsides, they quickly guide the graceful, the grateful, rather, and unworthy peasants whom they're sorry did not perish in the fire on toward the next civilization they've already prepared behind their golden globalist curtains. In the case of our civilizational arsonists presently taking flamethrowers to any sources of stability in the West, they're keen to destroy food supplies, inflate energy costs through shortages, and engineer a new breed of carbon-neutral consumers in the aftermath. They want to move us to smart-grid, sustainable cities where nobody will own cars or much of anything, and will live nearly full-time in an artificial digital universe as interchangeable avatars that get molested at discos by creepy cat crash-test-dummy-looking Zuckerberg clones. And when the VR headsets come off, it'll be for dental appointments or to consume sustainable bug larvae with a side of injectable graphene hydroxide to amplify the 7G signals incinerating any remnants of our highly evolved species. So the big question that never seems to be asked by the news media in all of this is... Where is Putin in all of this? Now, you have to understand, this is not a defense of Putin or Russia's actions in Ukraine. I feel silly that I even have to to say such a thing, but there are people who are reflexively, Putin stooge. If you're feeling cognitive dissonance, this is actually a good thing because it means you're getting the situation and you're grasping the reality of it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, I don't have to tell you, it's still a pretty hot real estate market. It's been extremely competitive here of late. Maybe the the higher interest rates are going to cool this down a little bit. Nonetheless, when you need to get a home loan, you need to get that financing squared away right away because homes are still being snapped up very quickly. I just watched, I saw an article yesterday of the top 20 counties in the U.S., where buying a home is becoming very, very difficult because they're very high priced, but they're also being snapped up as quick as they come on the market. And out of that uh, 20 top counties in the U.S., it was uh, it was amazing to see that uh, two of them were right there in Utah. Well, if you are listening anywhere within Utah or Idaho, please contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Heather has decades of experience. She knows what the lenders need. She knows what the borrowers need. She can get you the loan you need quickly because time is of the essence. Call her at 435-703-4522. So that, uh, that last segment, that uh, commentary about, uh, well, is it Putin or is it, uh, you know, others that are, that are inflicting all this harm on the world? And, you know, it's, it's okay to say the answer is, yeah, both. Isn't it interesting, though, that all the various uh, news organs and all the various information resources seem to be pointing our attention strictly at, well, you know, the only place you're really allowed to express your anger is toward Russia and Putin. And the people who are insisting this uh, most vehemently are the very same people who were psychologically abusing you over the last couple of years, insisting on follow the experts, follow the science, do what we say over COVID. I mean, it, it, sh- it should be obvious, right? You're not on the side of good just because I'm against Putin. You want to be consistent? Let's oppose tyranny in all of its forms. And that's the hardest thing, I think, for a lot of people to accept is that, uh, you know, the, the greatest danger to your life, your freedom, your, your peace of mind It's the rulers, the dictators right down the street from you rather than Russia's president. I mean, look, there are people who are suffering under his actions. But if you think you're one of them, if you buy into the idea, well, the reason you're paying more for gas is the Putin price hike. No. That's not true. And maybe you should keep a closer eye on the people who are closer to you who are actually doing you dirty than allowing them to artificially focus your attention on the bad guy of their choosing. It's distraction. As, as the good citizen puts it, if our true enemies are our own leaders and governments who've declared war on us, then the real enemy of our enemies is Vladimir Putin. I know, that makes people, oh, can you say that? <laughs> well, I just did, for better or worse. There it is. By the way, one of the most basic functions, rather, of legitimate government is to ensure that justice prevails. I would encourage reading Frederick Bastiat's The Law to get a better understanding of this in a very concise form. Why do we have the law in the first place? It's to ensure that justice prevails. So with that in mind, I want to share with you some excerpts from Julie Kelly's latest article on the treatment of the January 6th political prisoners. Because it seems pretty clear that 
In its myopic mission to punish political dissidents, the Justice Department and the Washington, D.C. courts are destroying the basic tenets of American jurisprudence and liberty. In other words, this is about punishing political prisoners. It's not about seeing that justice is done. She says, Ethan Nordine is entering his 13th month of captivity as a political prisoner in the United States of America. Arrested in his home state of Washington last February on nonviolent charges related to the Capitol protest on January 6th, 2021, 31-year-old Nordine has spent the last year in jail, mostly in solitary confinement. He hasn't held his young daughter or hugged his wife and parents for months. In the eyes of the Biden regime on a destructive crusade to exact revenge against supporters of Donald Trump, Nordine is a threat to the country, an alleged domestic violent extremist, in other words, terrorist, as a member of the Proud Boys. Now, that, of course, is not the group that burned, looted, and actually terrorized thousands of American communities throughout 2020, responsible for at least two dozen deaths and $2 billion in property damages. No, Nordine's real crime in Joe Biden's America was to support Donald Trump in the 2020 election. During an exchange last year at a congressional hearing between FBI Director Christopher Wray and Senator Amy Klobuchar, Ray suggested Nordine was among the most dangerous, most serious January 6th criminal cases. So what exactly did Nordine do that so alarmed Ray? Julie Kelly says like hundreds of thousands of Americans, he made plans to travel to Washington, D.C. to participate in a political protest, something that was not considered a crime before January 6th, 2021. Nordine and other members of the Proud Boys peacefully assembled near the Washington Monument in the morning, and then walked toward Capitol Hill. When some members of the Proud Boys and at least two FBI informants with the group physically breached a police line around 1 p.m. on January 6th, Nordine was not among them. Surveillance video released in his case by court order and over the Justice Department's strenuous objections shows Nordine walking through an open door on the west side of the building as Capitol Police stood by. He neither carried a weapon nor assaulted police officers. The most serious charges against him are conspiracy and obstruction of an official proceeding. Two nonviolent felonies. Sworn affidavits filed in the case show that Nordine had plans to return to his Airbnb rental in D.C. by 3 p.m. on January 6th, where Michael Graves, former lead singer of the punk rock band The Misfits, intended to perform for Ethan and his friends. Not exactly the kind of schedule that lends itself to violently toppling the seat of government. Yet Ethan Nordine, a man with no criminal record, who is not accused of committing any violence on January 6th, has been incarcerated since April 2021. Now, there are many villains in this case. Ray, Attorney General Garrett Mar- Merrick Garland, rather, U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, and the D.C. Appellate Court, among others. But the man most responsible for Nordine's captivity is Judge Timothy J. Kelly, appointed to the D.C. District Court by Donald Trump in 2017. Kelly, a former prosecutor in the same office now handling every January 6th case, is a disgrace to the bench and the U.S. Constitution, part of the vengeful Beltway ruling class hell-bent on destroying the lives of American citizens who dared to enter their rarefied space that day. A graduate of Georgetown Law School, Kelly spent his entire adult life in Washington, D.C., and served as legal counsel to Iowa Republican Senator Charles Grassley on Capitol Hill before his appointment to the court. Although Nordine was initially released after his arrest by Chief Judge Burl Howell, a hyperpartisan Obama appointee, no less, 
Federal prosecutors petitioned to keep him imprisoned awaiting trial, citing probable cause to believe Nordine committed a crime under a terrorism statute. Nordine's father, Mike, a successful restaurant owner in Seattle, offered a $1 million bond, the bulk of his life savings, and installed cameras around his home to assure Kelly, the judge assigned to the case, that he and his wife would enforce any conditions of release. But Kelly was unpersuaded. Claiming Nordine might be guilty of a federal crime of terrorism, Kelly denied Nordine's release. Although Nordine did not carry or use a weapon that day, he said and did things that day that are highly troubling, Kelly wrote in his April 20th, 2021 order. Nordine, Kelly continued, posed a danger to his community because of his role and leadership in a network that frequently creates events with large numbers of people and alleged involvement in political violence. Now, Nordine's attorneys, David and Nicholas Smith, immediately appealed, but three judges on the D.C. Circuit Court, including Trump appointee Naomi Rayo, upheld Kelly's decision to detain not just Nordine, but his co-defendant Joseph Biggs until trial for coordinating a large group of people and facilitating unlawful conduct on January 6th. In fact, Kelly's ordered pretrial detention for all five of Nordine's co-defendants in the Proud Boys case. Nordine's life and those of his family members have been a living hell ever since. He's been held in solitary confinement for weeks at a time and recently was transferred from a prison near his home to one in Virginia. As is the situation for every detained January 6th defendant, Nordine cannot easily access discovery material or regularly communicate with his lawyers to prepare his defense. Now, there's a lot more to this article, but the bottom line is, look, Julie Kelly writes, The Americans involved in the events of January 6, 2021, did not attempt to overthrow democracy. Instead, it's the people in power, including Merrick Garland and his lying prosecutors, who are systematically and unapologetically destroying the basic tenets of jurisprudence in a myopic mission to punish political dissidents. And no one more so than D.C. District Court Judge Timothy J. Kelly. There really is a lot of great content in her article. It's linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you find value in the information provided there, please consider dropping your email address in the uh, subscribe link down at the bottom of the page. I'll happily send you a copy every day that I publish my show notes, and you can peruse them at your leisure. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can safely gather to challenge the narrative, to find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers, to become more certain about who you are and what you stand for, more so than just simply what you're against, and most importantly, to receive encouragement to stand up and make the difference that you were born to make. I know this is going to make people uncomfortable, but I'm, I'm going to suggest if you're hearing this message, I think God put his finger on you, and you are one of the people he expects to stand firm in defense of things that are good, that are noble, that are uplifting. 
And that sounds like it should be an easy thing to do. But if you've done it, you understand it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the surest way to, to encounter some real hardcore opposition. But I appreciate you giving this program a chance. If you're a first-time listener, hang in there. Strap yourself in. We've got an interesting ride ahead for the next little bit. By the way, our show is brought to you by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit his website at DixieChiro.com. And if you or someone you know is dealing with the pain of neuropathy, I would strongly recommend, this is particularly for my Southern Utah listeners, go to DixieChiro.com, learn about the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. That's something you'll find exclusively at Dixie Chiropractic. Also, if you're dealing with bulging or herniated discs, this is something I've had to contend with over the last few years. And man, talk about something that can complicate your life. Well, check this out. Here's a $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. Again, that's at Dixie Chiropractic. Or if you're dealing with car accident injuries, reach out to Dr. Ward Wagner. Again, DixieChiro.com is the website. I have a link in my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. Well, I thought today we could start uh, with talking about economic problems. I I spend some time talking about this, but I also shy away from it. And it's it's not because I'm afraid I'm going to scare you too much. Honestly, it's because it puts puts a pit in, or a, a stone in the pit of my stomach that it concerns me. And I think one of the most frustrating things is the basic solutions to the economic problems that we're facing right now. These solutions are the very ones that the establishment elites will not allow us to pursue. I've got a great article here by Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. I want to take a little bit of time walking through this and just wait until you hear some of the solutions that, that he suggests here and then tell me, this is common sense. But it's so common sense that the ruling class absolutely will not allow us to even consider that because it would it would d- diminish their control over the population. Brandon Smith says, I think one of the great misconceptions about economic crisis is that solutions are always dependent on centralized government action. He says, in truth, most financial disasters are actually caused by too much government action and involvement. Central banks like the Federal Reserve are primary culprits, as he outlined in last week's article about their machinations, which are independent of government oversight and fall into the category of deliberate sabotage. The Fed bankrolls corruption through fiat money creation, while government officials and corporations utilize that money to wreak havoc on our living standards. So ending the Fed would solve the fiat money problem, But there's still a host of agenda-driven politicians and bureaucrats to deal with before our nation can right the ship. So one clear way to fix our system would be to first force government to interfere less. As a point of reference, consider, consider the common media narratives surrounding the COVID pandemic. Along with the White House, the media has been the premier driver of irrational fear over the spread of COVID, which ended up being a minor threat compared to the hype as the average infection fatality rate was no more than 0.27%. Yet in response to a virus that was a mortal danger to less than one-third of 1% of the population, bureaucrats declared a national emergency requiring insane and unconstitutional lockdowns. The lockdowns damaged the economy in ways people are only now beginning to comprehend, with hundreds of thousands of small businesses lost across the country. Not only that but the establishment responded to the economic implosion they created by printing over $6 trillion in new money through the Fed in 2020 alone. 
This helicopter money or beta test for universal basic income has expedited a stagflationary disaster and helped to push prices on necessities to 40-year highs. That's according to the official number. The media claims it's COVID causing the crash, but that's a lie. It was the response to COVID that is causing the crash. The virus was incidental to the economic sabotage initiated by governments and central banks. As we saw in the conservative red states that defied the lockdowns and the vax mandates, economic activity thrived while leftist blue states suffered. And what did these blue states get in return for their economic sacrifices? Nothing. COVID infections continued to rage in blue states and deaths often outpaced red states with similar-sized populations. In other words, the lockdowns, the mask mandates, and the attempts at forced vaccination through medical tyranny saved zero lives and possibly made things worse. This is the legacy of government micromanagement. And yes, let's not forget that Trump went along with these lockdowns in the beginning of the pandemic also. Biden is just the dirtbag that continued the measures, despite the massive amount of evidence that they don't work. So while the COVID event illustrates Brandon Smith's point in a big way, there are a lot of deeply rooted problems that government intervention has caused that add up to one big fiscal calamity. He says many of these threats require a basic but sweeping return to fundamentals that government elites will rarely address and will try to stop at all costs. So here are just a few examples. Inflation and stagflation back the dollar with hard commodities. Brandon Smith says the Federal Reserve and their minions have spent the better part of a century trying to convince the public that a gold standard for our currency is what caused the Great Depression and what could cause future depressions. They claim that limitations on money printing strangle liquidity and disrupt velocity. This is a lie. Former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke openly admitted in 2002 in a speech in honor of Milton Friedman that it was the central bank that actually caused the deflationary collapse of the 1930s not the existence of the gold standard. This rare moment of truth from a Fed official was perhaps due to the sheer amount of evidence that Friedman often cited that contradicted the original anti-gold propaganda. Or maybe it happened because the banking elites did not see Friedman as a particular threat and figured no one among the public would read Bernanke's speech anyway. In fact, a commodities foundation held the American economy together for centuries until the Fed came along and the government slowly began removing gold from the picture. All subsequent economic crisis events have been exponentially worse ever since. When a commodity standard is employed, stability always follows. Just look at what's happened in Russia recently. Their currency was on a downward spiral due to international sanctions. Yet when they reopened markets this past week, the ruble skyrocketed back to normal. Why? Because Putin had the currency coupled to gold. It's really that simple. The U.S. and parts of Europe are facing their own inflationary disasters, and this is largely due to the unchecked avarice of central bank stimulus and government spending. The only way to secure the dollar's existence as a stable store of wealth would be to back it with hard commodities like precious metals, among others. Now, this might kill the dollar's world reserve status because fiat printing would be impossible from that point on. But he says, I got a newsflash for those that hate the idea of grounding the dollar in commodities. We're going to lose world reserve status anyway, and it's going to happen soon. One third of the world's population, including Russia, China and India, are already breaking from the dollar in bilateral trade. The U.S. might well accept this is the reality. 
and prepare to mitigate the coming currency collapse by supporting the dollar with commodities. How about oil shortages and energy inflation? Well, the government could stop interfering with oil exploration. In early February of this year, the Biden administration made legal filings which halted new oil and gas leases, including exploration, due to conflicts over climate costs. Now, this interference with America's oil independence is only one of many instances, starting with Biden's sabotage of the Keystone Pipeline in 2021. Interestingly, with gas prices doubling ever since Biden entered office, The White House now claims that they have nothing to do with energy inflation and they're not preventing drilling in the U.S. Now, during the same period, Russia was establishing a decades-long oil and gas contract with China and laying the groundwork for a major pipeline to be finished by 2025. And yes, China does in fact have the capacity, along with India, to absorb most of the oil and gas that might be shunned by Europe should they follow through with energy sanctions. Russia was planning ahead while the U.S. was shifting from energy independence and net exporter status to once again becoming dependent on authoritarian regimes in the Arab world. And Brandon Smith asks, why? Biden's excuse is usually climate alarmism. But he points out the Earth's temperature has only risen by one degree Celsius in the past 100 years, according to NOAA. So the main argument against oil production in the U.S. is based on the fallacy that man-made carbon has any bearing whatsoever on climate changes. But maybe carbon fraud is just a distraction from something else. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing an article from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. Basic solutions to our economic problems that establish elites, establishment elites will not allow us to try. Because it would undermine their power, right? You can understand, hey, this is job security. I need control over you, and therefore I need to make sure that you don't ever have a real solution at your hands. Let's go back here to, again, oil and energy inflation. The solution would be to stop interfering with oil exploration. Brandon Smith writes, to fix any supply and demand issues in the U.S., we only need to start producing once again at levels that were easily obtainable in 2020. But what if the issue of supply contraction is not the main cause of oil inflation? He says, I would note that the dollar is not only the world reserve currency, but also the global petrol currency. Until recently, almost all oil was traded internationally using dollars. The decline or collapse of the dollar's buying power due to money printing and runaway inflation is more likely the direct cause of rising oil prices and supply issues are secondary. If the dollar was about to collapse due to inflation, oil would be one of the first early warning indicators. With the establishment blocking new oil production and hindering the most cost-effective method for oil transport being pipelines, an engineered decline in supply becomes a very effective smokescreen for the death of the dollar. The crisis caused by the government and the Federal Reserve's currency destruction could then be blamed on supply chain issues and climate peril. This is the reason why the establishment will not allow any future growth in U.S. oil production. They cannot allow the public to realize the precarious position our currency is in. I don't know if he's right, But that does make a a certain amount of sense to me. 
Next, he talks about supply chain interdependency leading to shortages. How do you solve that? Bring back manufacturing. Brandon Smith says there are a lot of reasons why manufacturing has left the U.S. from greedy and corrupt labor unions driving up wages to higher taxes and land costs to extremely cheap shipping from overseas exporters. And there's also the theory that U.S. factories were outsourced to places like China in order to deliberately force the public into a global interdependency scheme. In other words, we are stuck with the supply chain we have, not because it's the best system, but because the globalists want it that way. Now, it's unlikely that the federal government and the elitist establishment would ever allow real manufacturing to come back to the U.S. in a way that would make us more self-sufficient. As long as our country relies on outsourced goods and raw materials from other nations, we remain beholden to the global chain for our survival. Being completely independent might be impossible, but we could be producing far more domestically than we are today. State governments could create incentives to manufacture within their borders by removing property taxes, reducing state taxes, and protecting businesses from certain federal obstructions, such as carbon restrictions. As long as those companies do not support anti-freedom initiatives with the money they make, they should be aided so that real jobs and real production make a comeback in the U.S. He says, I would also note that if states want to survive the coming financial crisis that's about to strike... They're going to have to start ignoring federal restrictions on land use and the production of raw materials like oil or coal. Some environmental rules are good, some are pointless, and are only designed to control rather than protect. States will have to stand in defiance of these rules if anything is going to change for the better. How about the debt and liquidity crisis? Well, Brandon Smith says the answer is to let states establish their own banks and currencies. The state of North Dakota has an interesting model for economic independence, which utilizes a state-sponsored bank designed specifically to help businesses in North Dakota. Brandon Smith says, I would say it's bizarre that this idea has not become popular across the nation, but I understand that if it did, the federal government and the central bankers would be very unhappy. So here's the thing. While it is true that the Constitution explicitly states that the U.S. Treasury would be the only issuer of U.S. currency... This was done at a time when our currency was backed by gold and silver, and there was no corrupt middleman in the form of a central bank. In truth, the Treasury is now second fiddle to the Federal Reserve, and the constitutional regulations on money have already been broken. It's time for a new currency model and new banking model. An official bank in each state could decentralize power away from the Federal Reserve in terms of how debt and interest rates are handled, creating something closer to free market discovery of interest rates rather than a rate dictatorship controlled by the Fed. By extension, each state could also issue currency script legal for use only within the borders of those states. This would create a secondary safety net against inflation in the dollar. In other words, we decentralize the banking system and we offer state alternatives which function not so much as competing currencies, but as parallel or complementary currencies backed by and exchangeable in certain commodities. In fact, he says, I believe very strongly that this model, along with a couple dozen other measures I don't have space to cover here, could save our country from decades of economic mismanagement and bring us back from the brink of inflation and debt catastrophe. States could do this without the permission of the federal government or the Federal Reserve. But he says, I have little doubt that the elites would be in an uproar. Make no mistake, states will have to move to decouple from the national financial system and build alternatives as soon as they realize the dollar is tanking and stagflation is here to stay. 
And when they do, the establishment will declare such actions on par with insurrection. Now, in the meantime, there are numerous preparations each individual can make in their local communities to insulate themselves from economic dangers. Now, there are those that say that local measures are just a stopgap. More national action needs to be taken. And they're partially correct, says Brandon Smith. In the long run, there needs to be wider organization toward free markets once again, along with redundancies in state economies. In the short term, though, we must do what we can. Ultimately, the most clear solutions to our fiscal fate are not pursued because the elites do not want to save the economy, at least not in a way that ends up with them having less power. They want even more power and centralization that extends beyond national boundaries into the realm of global management. Fixing the system can't happen because they won't let it happen. So this means that the fix that will save us in the long run will be the one that allows all others to progress. And that fix is to remove these people from positions of influence and authority. You can't really repair the body in the wake of an illness until the offending disease is eliminated. So he says, for now, all we can do is keep the country on life support until a cure is applied. I think there's some really solid advice in this article from Brandon Smith. And I think also that you're going to find that even though it makes sense to me, yes, you know, the states need to provide, you know, that decentralizing influence. But I think you're going to find this is going to be a very hard sell because state governments turn out to be just as corruptible as their their federal counterpart. You know, they they are dependent on federal money. I mean, I look to look to the state of Utah and Governor Spencer Cox. Why did he toe the line so ferociously on every ill-conceived COVID measure possible? Okay, I mean, he wasn't as bad as Gavin Newsom, but still, there were federal dollars that were at stake. And I think you will find this to be the case in most of these states. I believe this happened in, in the state I'm living in now, Idaho. Governor Brad Little, same thing. What, there's federal dollars? Oh, well, we need that money. We got to have that. And therefore, they will bend the knee. So when, it, when Brandon Smith means we got to remove these people from positions of influence and authority, he's not just talking about at the federal level. It's going to have to happen at the state level. And I know some people, oh, you talk about removing them. What are you talking about there? That, that sounds like insurrection. Oh, I mean, it could be done, you know, through uh, an election. Although the system's pretty rigged right now, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, they, they don't really want you to have an alternative, even at the state level. Very careful about which candidates are actually uh, considered legitimate and which ones, you know, are not. Here's a handy rule of thumb. If a candidate has any possibility of shifting the direction of the status quo, yeah, they're not legitimate. They couldn't be. They've, they've got to have fealty to the system and protect the system. So I'm much more a fan of let's build the parallel systems, the parallel economies that essentially just take the rug right out from under these these politicians and these bureaucrats by making them obsolete. It's not a matter of intimidating them out of office. It's a matter of them looking around going, hey, where did my constituency go? Because we moved on and started governing ourselves. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 
I want to send some love in the direction of Sewing and Quilting Center, located in St. George, Utah. Very happy to have them as a sponsor of this program. And I know that uh, there have been uh, those of you who have been reaching out to them and telling them, hey, thanks for sponsoring Brian's show. Thank you. I, I appreciate that you've reached out to them and let them know that their message is reaching your ears. I'm going to ask you if, if you or if someone you love is in need of a sewing machine or you need a long arm quilting machine or a serger or maybe you actually have a machine but just want to learn how to use it or need supplies, please do business with them. Take it to that next step. Show them some patronage. You will find that they will take care of you. This is a family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1984. It's only had three owners in that time, and the original owner still is very much a part of, of the business. He works on the machines. He's a technician and fixes and repairs what they sell and even machines that, that they don't sell. I guess what I'm telling you is uh, having the ability to sew and to create and to manufacture your clothing or repair your clothing is a really good thing to have. And you can't go wrong with a company that will back you up with teaching you how to use what you've got and as well as servicing it, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. All right. I feel like I feel like we spelled out a lot of problems in the last couple of segments, so I want to focus on something that's a little more hopeful. Cuz right now the world's getting pretty chaotic and and as I'm watching the prices go higher and higher, and in the next segment, I'm going to actually talk about uh, supply chain shortages. I'm, I'm very worried. In fact, I, I want to share with you, there was a tweet that I saw yesterday that, that just, it rang so true, it kind of it kicked me in the stomach. It was uh, Michael O'Fallon who said, be warned, while we are celebrating the end of masks, the Biden administration is actively orchestrating future food shortages in the United States in the coming months. And Republicans are curiously silent. I know. Wait, I thought you were going to go a more cheerful direction, Brian. Okay, I am now. But that's the kind of stuff that I see happening that I, I agree. I think, that, I think that what we're seeing and what is still approaching is absolutely engineered. And I think that it's, it's on the part of the, the ruling elite, the people who think they are the ones who control all the levers of you know, how things happen and why. I think they want us to feel helpless to feel like there's nothing to do but to surrender and go along. So let's talk about where can you find refuge in a chaotic world that's getting more chaotic by the day. Well, here's an article from Bonnie Matheson. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. Making a cheerful home in dark times. She says, putting a few extra little touches into making your home a place of joy and cheer will make it a haven from the depressing darkness. And I know this seems very obvious, right? Well, home is supposed to be, you know, your place of refuge. It really is. And not just home, but the relationships that you have within your home. Family is also a part of that refuge. She says, some people have a knack for making a place a home, no matter how humble the dwelling. And when we walk into these houses we immediately feel enveloped in good vibes. These people can even transform a hotel room in a matter of minutes by artistically placing their belongings around in a way that makes their personality shine forth. Now, by contrast, other houses, even some of the most rich and lavish, are cold and uninviting or simply a mess. Bonnie Matheson says, We all crave and need a home. Not just a living space, but a home that supplies our needs, emotional and spiritual. Sometimes people know a house is perfect for them and are able to afford it, 
and that place is fun and refreshing, but not everyone is so fortunate, and many times we simply have to make do. Now, this can be discouraging because most of us aren't trained decorators, nor are many of us made of money. So what we forget is that there are many ways we can simply and easily transform a house into a home that welcomes and warms those who frequent it. Attitude plays a big factor in the enjoyment of our surroundings. Incorporating simple things into your home, such as a print of a painting you love or other belongings placed around artistically, can brighten your attitude and enjoyment. She says flowers are another item that go a long way toward brightening your surroundings and mood, and they don't have to be from a florist. Cheap flowers can be bought at the grocery store or picked outside and placing them in a vase or a drinking glass or setting them on a table or mantle or on top of the radiator will work magic. Color is another thing that makes a home. It creates mood and encourages serenity or unease, either depressing or giving joy. She says, I discovered this when I moved back to my elderly mother's house to help take care of her. My old bedroom, which my parents had repainted years before, was a dusty rose shade that had faded and darkened over the years. She says, it depressed me. I wanted to leave when I walked into that room. Now, she says, you don't have to paint your room, but there are other ways to change the color you notice most. Students do this when they decorate their dorm rooms with posters they like or cover the wall with a large piece of material hung like a tapestry. Sometimes just painting one wall will change everything about your space. As long as you have enough of the colors you enjoy, you can focus on them instead of what you don't like. Repurposing items is another way we can make a house more homelike. So if we find ourselves living in a place with carpeting we dislike intensely, we can mitigate the problem by placing a small area rug on top of that carpet. Work with one small item at a time. Move something that bothers you. Trash something you can't stand. Add a find from a thrift shop, antique shop, or your parents' attic. It's such fun to see the energy change in a room or a house. Make a nest that suits you and watch your whole life improve overall. Enjoy it. Bonnie Matheson says you don't have to be a trained decorator to improve your surroundings. There are so many magazines, videos, and of course the highly addictive Pinterest. Furthermore, she says we shouldn't be intimidated by someone else's success. Everyone has their own style. Some people prefer minimalist rooms while others crave clutter. Some want all white and steel and will accent it with gray. But she says people like me crave color, often overlapping and sometimes even clashing, but it works. In the last two years, people have spent more time than ever in their homes. And even though many are now emerging from those homes and getting out more, she says there's no denying that we live in dark times. Putting a few little extra touches into making your home a place of joy and cheer We'll make it a haven from the depressing darkness. Now, I I have no decorating credentials, so what I'm about to offer, I just offer in the interest of what I have seen actually work in my own life. But uh, something very simple that has been nonetheless, you know, life-changing in terms of making our house feel like a home is uh, something that uh, my sister-in-law helped out with. Uh, She has this eye of being able to, to set things up to where, I don't know, she just she has a good eye for, for, for decorating. And, and we're not made of money, so we're just kind of making do with what we had. In fact, sometimes I worry that we got too much and it's, it's getting cluttered. But something that I had received back when uh, my wife and I, when Becky and I were first married, my grandmother gave me her china. And it's, uh, you know, it's an old pattern. It's been around a long time. This stuff is probably pretty close to 100 years old. And it's an interesting pattern. You know, 
the funny thing is it's not necessarily even a color that I really like that much. It's just kind of like, okay, it's... It, but, it, but it was my grandma's, and, and it has sentimental value as well as the fact that she gave it to us because she wanted to keep it in our family rather than just, you know, send it off to DI or Goodwill or something like that. And that china has sat on a closet shelf in my mom's house for uh, the better part of the last 30 years. It wasn't until we had our last move that we finally went and got that china, and that's when my sister-in-law came to visit us. And she helped us decorate our home. And in our kitchen, there's a nice, you know, plant shelf up above the stove and above the cupboards and cupboards and whatnot. And that's where this ended up. Major helped us to to arrange that china sitting up there, um, just so it's not fancy, but it's definitely a part of our home. And you know what? It fits. And every time I walk into the kitchen, I have this visual reminder of, oh, that's right. There's my connection to my grandma looking me in the eye. So, something that simple. And, you know, again, I I have no decorating sense. As a friend pointed out years ago, you know, Brian, plaid and scorch marks clash, so you should probably work on that. That's about the extent of my, my decorating knowledge. But I like having things that remind me of heritage. I have a clock or a wardrobe mirror that, that my grandfather created. He was a master woodworker. He, he built grandfather clocks. I like to see things that, that, that remind me of those who came before and that tie me to those who came before. And I won't go into it so much in this segment, but you know, if, if you're working on making your home or your house a more beautiful place, making it feel like a home and someplace where you can find refuge from all the storms going on around us, probably not a bad idea to invest some time and effort into building your relationships with family because that's where your surest refuge is going to be found. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. If you have things that are keeping you apart from family, if there are old, you know, misdeeds or grudges that have uh, proven to be a barrier, maybe this is the time to uh, swallow your pride, set aside those differences and get those uh, differences mended. I think the time is short for fixing such things, so let's not put it off. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know there are times where I ask myself, Brian, are you doing anything productive? Are you actually doing something that's helpful? Sometimes I worry that this is just like a great big broadcast therapy session. <laughs> and, and you're my therapist taking notes and going, good Lord, when is this, this going to be over? When was the timer going to go off? But I appreciate you being a part of the audience. I appreciate you taking a look at things from a slightly different angle. And, and I, I'm grateful that you would do this in spite of the fact that I realize not everybody is going to agree. Not everybody, you know, cares about the same kinds of things. I share what I hope is useful information that will provide you with a better understanding of what's going on in the world as well as options that don't involve, you know, chanting in unison or shouting bumper sticker slogans at other people. I feel like that's, that's some of the least productive stuff that we can do. I want to share an article with you here 
about uh, the state of Georgia being the first to declare a state of emergency over supply chain shortages. And this one really concerns me. I I actually have a couple of friends uh, th- that I deeply trust who send me almost daily. They're sending me articles and we're, oh, we're looking at interest rates. We're looking at, uh, you know, what's happening with fertilizer and what's going to happen in the, the next crop cycle. And there's some pretty daunting stuff on the horizon. We don't see it right now. Everything still appears very nice and normal. And when it comes becomes clear to people that, ooh, this is not just a matter of food prices rising, but it's actually turning into where it's getting hard to find certain kinds of food. I think we're likely to see some of that, uh, that panic that we saw a couple of years ago when people were clearing out the store shelves and fighting over toilet paper because, you know, they weren't sure when, when there would be more in stock. I don't know if you have ever, you know, experienced that, if you've seen empty store shelves or you've, you've stood in line with people at 5 o'clock in the morning outside a grocery store waiting for it to open up and seen that look of determination on people's faces, but it's a little bit unnerving. Very, very different from the world that most of us grew up in, where, you know, if you need something, well, just run down to, you know, whatever's open 24 hours and get it. So this is an article from Aiden Tate from The Organic Prepper, who says things have apparently gotten so bad in Georgia that the governor has now declared that the state is living under a state of emergency due to supply chain shortages. Now, this is a Republican governor. So just understand, this isn't some Democrats, you know, having a power grab. This is a Republican. It may be a power grab, but nonetheless... Republican Brian Kemp decreed this executive order April 14th, stating that COVID was the reason for all the economic distress and supply chain issues within the state of Florida, of Georgia, rather. Kemp locked down Georgia at the beginning of 2020, and Georgians received another notification in November 2020 they would be locked down for another two months. Now, the unconstitutional lockdowns aren't mentioned within the executive order as being the cause of the economic woes of the people of Georgia. So he asks the question, Does Kemp now have unlimited powers? From the wording of his executive order, it appears so. As he cites within the order, Code Section 38-3-28, it says that all orders, rules, and regulations promulgated by the governor have the force and effect of law. So this gives the appearance that uh, Georgia is no longer ruled by law, but instead by decree. The order cites Code Section 38-3-51, saying that Kemp now needs to, now gets to assume direct operational control of all civil forces and helpers in the state, and that he can do whatever is necessary to promote and secure the safety and protection of the civilian population. Now, Aiden Tate says, at the moment, do the three branches of government exist within the state of Georgia? Because from the wording of this executive order, it appears as if there is the executive branch, and that's it. So what exactly does this executive order do? Well, price gouging is now considered to be illegal. No specific rate of markup is defined to delineate whatever exactly price gouging is. He says, I suppose that'll be left up to the discretion of whoever shows up to enforce this new order. Will the shop owner have to prove how much he paid for an item to avoid being fined and or sent to jail? Will shop owners be forced to accept lower profit margins and are th- than they're used to in order to avoid being labeled a price gouger? What will this do for businesses? 
To help with the supply chain problems, it was apparently thought that there needed to be longer hours for truckers, Part 395 of Title 49 of the Code of Federal Regulations, the part that dictates how many hours a semi-truck driver can operate his rig, has now been removed from Georgia as well. A clause was added to explicitly state that no carrier could force any of their truck drivers to work when they were either ill or fatigued as well. At the very bottom of this executive order, Kemp added that if any part of the order is found to be in violation of the Georgia Constitution, in violation of Georgia law, or unenforceable in any respect, such invalidity, violation, or unenforceability shall not affect any other provisions of this order, but in such case, this order shall be construed as such, as if such invalid, illegal, or unenforceable provision had never been contained within the order. So as things stand, this state of emergency is slated to last for the next 30 days unless things magically get better in Georgia before then, in which case the order will be lifted early. And he has a link to the full executive order here in the article, which you'll find in my show notes. Now, again, I'm not trying to scare you, but I think this is worth sharing, and I think you should sit up and pay attention. This is likely the first domino to fall. Aiden Tate says there's no reason to believe that there won't be more states to make similar proclamations in the near future. There's no reason to believe that just by extending the number of hours that a trucker can drive, that there will be an easing of the supply chain issues within Georgia within the next 30 days either. The current supply chain issues are multifactorial. Uh, they, they have no reason to believe that squeezing three to five extra hours per week is going to cause things to get better. If there's no product to ship, If there's no product to begin with, rather, then there's nothing to ship. So his bottom line here is, let Georgia serve as the canary in the coal mine for you. Being in the middle of the South, Georgia is typically considered to be a relatively conservative area, minus the city of Atlanta. If the governor there is willing to give an executive order that appears to drastically expand his powers and seemingly shutter the other branches of government... Maybe you should be asking yourself, what could happen in your state? If supply chain problems can lead to a state of emergency being declared that dictates how much you can charge for an item, how long will it be before further measures are taken in Georgia? And once it's realized that these extended trucker hours don't help when inflation has wrecked the economy, what next steps will be taken to solve the crisis? Will confiscation of privately owned food from hoarders be used to fight the crisis? Will further powers be granted to Georgia's governor? Will perhaps gas rations will come into place? What do you expect to see? He says, well, whatever comes next, I can tell you one thing. I don't think you're going to like it. He says, I mean, I like cream cheese as much as the next guy, but drafting an entire executive order for supply chain issues, it just seems a bit excessive. Now, I understand. What I've just shared with you sounds a lot like uh, the sky is falling, right? Shake that off. Okay, this is not for the intent of causing fear. But if it's causing concern, that's probably a good thing. Concern is manageable. Concern doesn't paralyze you. Fear is what makes you just stop and freeze in place. and Fight or flight, what do I do? What do I do? I'm just asking you to to kind of war game this out in your mind. This is what we call the what-if game. What if my governor were to likewise pull some wacky executive order out of his ear or other places and just, you know, start to, you know, solving problems no matter what? 
would I be in a position to decline or to refuse to go along with whatever, you know, was, was being said? I can't answer that for you. And I know, I had, look, I get how utterly radical this sounds, but uh, the last couple of years have, have, uh, have changed me. Some in some ways in a good way, in some ways in a not so good way. But one of the ways that it has changed me, it has absolutely tempered the steel in my soul. And I'm very clear right now on things that I would go along with versus things I absolutely would not go along with. I know where my line in the sand is. As I've mentioned before, my line in the sand is looking more and more like a trench these days. If you're not doing what you can to become as self-reliant as possible, if you're not doing what you can to build your own community, and I'm talking about a small community, it could be a circle of friends, it could be family, it could just be you and your neighbors. If you're not doing what you can to build the backup system that would be there in the event of a failure of civility, this is the time to get on that and to do it with haste. As if time were very short, because I think it may be. I don't know what the next crisis is that's coming our way. But the way I see things lining up, we might be wise to consider some possibilities and uh, start mapping out some potential courses of action. This is The Brian Hyde Show.